Welcome to Practical Dermatology, the podcast. The transgender community is an ever-growing population across all age groups. As dermatologists see more non-binary and gender non-conforming patients in their practices, it's critical to know how best to serve this population. Accommodating all patients goes beyond simply just revising intake forms and providing gender-neutral restrooms, although those things are important. Ongoing discrimination in the healthcare setting, whether it's lack of knowledgeable clinicians, outright discrimination, or even violence, serves only to further isolate and stigmatize trans people. Today's conversation is about how dermatologists and their staff can create a welcoming environment and elevate the standard of care for transgender patients. Transgender and gender diverse people are looking for reassurances of safety and a welcoming environment from the moment of first contact with your office, whether that be with a call center or an appointment line or a mailing or anything like that. And intake forms are one of the most important tools that we have to communicate a safe space. So including sexual orientation and gender identity questions on these forms helps to ensure that patients feel seen, but more importantly, or argue just as importantly, they also help to provide quality care in terms of preventative health care, screening, risk reduction, counseling, etc. And we find that people ask these questions in a lot of different ways. And what we have found to be most compelling is to frame these questions in what's called the two-step method, which is a two-step way of asking sexual orientation and gender identity questions, which asks first for sex assigned at birth, and then after that would be a patient's gender identity. And so uh, if if the sex assigned at birth response is different from that expected um, for the gender identity response, then that would suggest that there is someone who is identifying as gender diverse. And really what this does is it helps to prevent um, cisnormativity and how we ask questions. So normalizing this notion of gender diversity and validating and normalizing the experiences of those who may may not identify with the gender binary. And this is in contrast to how these questions used to be asked and sometimes are still asked. And and, uh, as an example would be, do you identify as transgender? Yes or no. And this really is favored because it basically up front can be stigmatizing to a transgender individual if the question is directly um, and explicitly asking about transgender status because it kind of others transgender people as opposed to asking sex assigned at birth and then gender identity, which all of us have a sex assigned at birth and all of us have a gender identity regardless of whether we are cisgender or transgender. And that's why the two-step method is a better method for asking those questions. Um, And it has been found to be superior to a single question um, as far as asking, do you identify as transgender or not? Um, Since some transgender people obviously may choose man or woman, um, and in effect, um, with the one-step question, that renders them invisible. And so also it's important to ensure that all staff in the clinic space 
are trained in a framework of cultural humility. And cultural humility, unlike the old term cultural competency, is a concept that really emphasizes lifelong learning and that we are never going to be truly competent, so to speak, in a culture. Um, but it's more about learning and adapting and coming to know um, and learn about other people and their lived experiences over a lifetime. And this training goes not just for clinicians. It should be about call center personnel, nurses, medical assistants, billers, encoders, receptionists, everyone who has any sort of contact or intersection with patients. And everyone should be familiar with the right terminology. Um, and of course, pronoun usage as well. Remember that many people do not use pronouns at all. They just want to use their name, for example, or people may use what's called neo-pronouns, meaning pronouns that do not necessarily align with our gender binary use of conventional pronouns. So things like um, Z, Zer, etc. And office personnel and all of us um, should be able to be comfortable using those pronouns or using no pronouns at all. And I think people tend to find that that's not an easy thing to do if you're not used to it. So in other words, if you're not used to talking um, to a person who doesn't use pronouns. Um, that can be something that takes practice, and it can be something that requires a little bit of effort to get comfortable um, using those um, pronouns or lack thereof in the appropriate terminology. And of course, avoid any assumptions. I think that's the most important point that can be made, is that we all come from different walks of life and different lived experiences. And so just because someone is standing in front of you and they look that they probably identify as a certain gender or not. That doesn't mean that that is um, authentic to their gender identity. And it's important to take a step back and recognize um, that we need to clarify um, all those identifiers um, and pronoun usages, etc. cetera, uh, in every single encounter. The other thing is when we're looking at the clinic space, you know, is the clinic space welcoming? Is it safe? Is it open? Is it affirming? Um, so not just when it comes to staff being trained appropriately, but when a person walks into your office, how does it look? You know, what artworks on the walls, what magazines are on the table, what pamphlets are in your little pamphlet holders, and what people um, does it show? You know, um, all of these should ensure diversity with regard to not only skin color, um, as has been a huge emphasis in the last several years, and rightly so, but also portrayals of different family structures, including same-sex relationships, diversity of gender expression, the notion of what a family unit looks like. Um, so looking around your office and being sure that we're not just highlighting one single kind of lived experience and that we are being affirming to everyone who walks through the doors. And so when we think about all of these, these are kind of things that we can do to make our offices and to make our, our office staff and, and everyone who's involved in patient care feel more comfortable and empowered to take care of transgender people. But there's a lot of other barriers to providing gender affirming care too. And so we can talk a little bit about those. Um, the first thing I'll say is, is kind of dovetailing with what I just said. So one of the barriers is simply that we need more data and we can only get to that 
that through structured and standardized collection of sexual orientation and gender identity data across all domains, not just healthcare, but also biomedical research and clinical trials, public health surveys, workforce demographics. You know, only by knowing this patient population can we hope to better understand the lived experiences and unique health disparities that these marginalized populations are going to face. And so what ends up happening is that if we're not collecting data on the sexual and gender diverse community, then we don't know who they are. We don't know where they are. We don't know what disparities they face. And we also don't even know that about our own physician workforce, right? We also have problems knowing if the dermatology workforce is set up to meet the needs um, of these patient populations because we know that patients want to see themselves mirrored in the physician's that are caring for them and in the healthcare workforce that's caring for them. And so it's important that we empower medical students and trainees um, to seek out careers in dermatology. And the second major barrier is really a newer one in recent years and likely one that's well known to anyone keeping up with the news at this point because we're seeing quite a bit of it. We're seeing coordinated efforts across the country to legislate discrimination against transgender people. And anti-transgender legislation this year alone has eclipsed all previous years and shows no signs of slowing down. And now at least 20 states have enacted bans or restrictions on best practice medical care for transgender people, mostly transgender youth, which means that nearly one in three transgender youth live in states where medically necessary health care is or will be banned. And these bills block access to things like medications for gender affirmation, such as puberty blockers and hormone treatments, as well as procedural affirmation. And the language in this legislation is typically nebulous, likely by design, and it varies across the states, and in many cases can be interpreted as applying to dermatology. And further, many of these laws prohibit what we call aiding and abetting in gender-affirming care, which further complicates both the direct and supportive roles that dermatologists can take in the care of transgender people. And some of these laws even go so far as criminalizing this care, resulting in threats to the physician's license, as well as potentially more severe consequences. Um, I'm sorry, consequences such as civil or criminal penalties, and also an impact on one's professional liability insurance, among other things. We still don't really have a great idea of what this landscape is going to look like moving forward because the constitutionality and legality of these laws is certainly under question, um, and a lot of this is going to have to play out through the courts. But in many instances, you know, the damage has already been done because transgender people, children, youth, adults, all alike, have had to listen to these conversations play out in their state legislative chambers and across the country and on the news, basically seeing their identities and well-being attacked um, and their right to evidence-based medical care come under fire. And this has led directly to issues of adverse consequences on mental health, suicidality, um, all also people moving out of states that have passed um, this legislation um, to find or relocate to states um, that are uh, more permissive of gender affirming care. Um, but 
it's not all bad. So 11 states and Washington, D.C. have either an executive order or legislation protecting access to gender-affirming care, almost kind of a sanctuary model per se. Um, and these are known as transgender health care shield laws. So there are um, other kind of forces at work in the country fighting against all of this restrictive legislation. Uh, but we continue to see more and more instances of this, and, and I think we're going to see more in the years ahead. Um, for instance, four states so far, um, Kansas, Montana, Tennessee, and North Dakota, have moved to explicitly define the term sex as that assigned at birth and only as male or female, indicating that a transgender individual's gender identity will never be legally recognized under that state law. There are nine states that have targeted religious exemptions that permit medical professionals to decline to serve LGBTQ patients um, based on their religious beliefs. So there's a lot of different ways that these conversations are playing out. Um, and I think it's really important to take a step back and think about how the issues of redefining sex are going to play out across the landscape of the country, particularly given that Currently, um, we do not have universal legislative protections at the federal level uh, protecting sexual and gender diverse people on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity across all aspects of life. And for instance, what, as an example, what I mean by that is that currently, um, so in healthcare, Section 1557, which is an important thing to remember, is the non-discrimination provision of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and that provision prohibits discrimination in healthcare on the basis of sex. Now, sex is not defined inherently in that law, in that non-discrimination provision, but it is regulatorily interpreted as inclusive of sexual orientation and gender identity. So technically in healthcare, discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity should be prohibited. Um, but that's not the case because that's only the regulatory definition right now. And what we're seeing is that the state laws are trying to challenge that in, in several different ways. And so what we need is basically something like the Equality Act, which has been introduced in many different legislative sessions at this point and has failed. Um, but that act that piece of legislation would essentially enshrine protections um, based on sex inclusive of sexual orientation and gender identity across the board but we currently don't have that which is why we're seeing so much conflict between these state laws and what would arguably be seen um, as federal non-discrimination provisions at this point so there's more to come on that there's a lot that we don't know there's a lot that still needs to play out um, but ultimately at this point I think a lot of how dermatologists approach that really need to be looked at state by state. In other words, what is 
the language of the laws that is in effect or not in your particular state? Um, are those laws um, showcasing aiding and abetting language? Are they pertaining to procedures um, or just to medical care, let's say with hormones or puberty blockers? There's a lot there. Um, and there are some states in which some people are limiting um, gender-affirming care and they're not participating in gender-affirming care as much as they were in the past out of fear of being in conflict with the law. And so I think that there's a lot of work on this front, but still we, we don't really know how this is going to play out just because these laws are so new and because most of them are, are currently in the courts. So how can dermatologists really address concerns faced um, by, by transgender individuals and the care that they're seeking? And really, dermatology can play a huge role in promoting the health and well-being of transgender people. For example, those on gender-affirming hormone therapy with testosterone and those who identify as transmasculine may seek treatment for hormone-mediated acne and hair loss. And dermatology, of course, offers a host of minimally invasive procedures that can aid in gender-affirming goals, including neurotoxins, soft tissue augmentation, body contouring, scar revision, and hair removal, which can be either preoperative or facial. Um, in other words, we can treat hirsutism with laser, things like that. And also we can manage um, when folks have used non-medical grade filler injections, which is also known in some areas as illicit fillers. And then of course, transgender people face disparate rates of sexually transmitted illness illnesses, including HIV infection and human papillomavirus infection, and HPV it can have an impact on cancer screening, particularly for those who have undergone bottom surgery and other procedures similar to that. So there are many ways in which dermatology can complement um, the care that's being provided more broadly um, for the gender diverse population. But it's also really important that we take a step back and recognize that just because a transgender person walks into your office, it does not mean that they are coming to you solely for an issue related to their gender affirmation. Um, transgender people could come into the office just to have a mole looked at. They could come into the office um, because of a concern about toenail fungus or eczema or any number of things that don't really have a direct intersection um, with their gender affirmation goals or therapies or procedures, um, which is incredibly common, right? Um, you know, transgender people, just like cisgender people, we all have skin. We all have needs that, that require a board-certified dermatologist to really manage. And, um, and it's no different in this case. Uh, so, but all of that does mean that we still need to be cognizant of the pronouns a person uses, their gender identity, their sexual orientation, basically the terminology they want us to use and how they should be addressed and basically communicating that safe space because um, many trans individuals are worried about safety and security and validation in the healthcare setting 
regardless of what they're coming into the office for. So regardless of what they're being seen for, in no way does that diminish the importance and value of ensuring that safe space uh, and having open conversations and affirming conversations and using affirmative affirming terminology and being sure um, that we're showing that we are uh, knowledgeable about the needs of everyone and that we're able to make our practices inclusive of everyone regardless of their walk of life, their gender identity, um, or their gender expression. And the other thing to really focus on here, too, is part of the way that we meet these needs is through curriculum reform. We know that in general, um, dermatologists and dermatologists in training don't really get enough education regarding gender diversity and LGBTQ issues in dermatology. There was a study several years ago that showed that about half of dermatology residency programs had zero hours dedicated specifically to this type of training. And so not only is integration of this content into undergraduate and graduate medical education super critical, but we also need to ensure that we have direct clinical exposure to these patients during training, um, as well as exposure to welcoming institutions with structural support for sexual and gender diverse people, and that trainees are basically trained in an environment that prioritizes the needs of sexual and gender diverse people and has exposure um, to these individuals and really any marginalized population to be sure that the dermatologists and physicians of tomorrow are able to meet the needs of this growing population. And so as we see more of an attack throughout the nation on the rights of transgender and gender diverse people to seek out evidence-based medical care, you know, it, it becomes all the more important that we be engaged with this work and to be sure that we are developing curricula that will promote and support um, evidence-based medicine and dermatology and also that we advocate and speak up for what's right, speak up for evidence-based medicine. I personally feel that advocacy is fundamentally intertwined with my clinical and medical practice um, and that I couldn't do what I do without it. Um, so being engaged in organized medicine, um, communicating with your uh, elected officials on the local, state, and federal levels, being sure that everyone is aware of the importance of this work and that this is evidence-based medicine uh, and that the physician-patient relationship is sacred and that we have to uphold that. Um, and that's the least we can do um, for our marginalized patient populations and those um, who deserve the same quality care um, that everyone else has access to. Clint Peebles is a board-certified dermatologist in Washington, D.C. with extensive clinical, leadership, and research expertise in sexual and gender-diverse health and gender-affirming dermatology. We thank him for his participation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Practical Dermatology, the podcast. You can find future episodes at practicaldermatology.com or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.